Let's open our Bibles now to Romans chapter 8 as we continue on in this glorious epistle and chapter 8, which is one of the most glorious chapters in all of Scripture. Such a a joy it is to to study this together. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So that has us in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord now. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your glorious word. Thank you for this inerrant supernatural gift that you have given to us, Lord. Thank you that you've revealed yourself in scripture. We, your people, can meet with you in your word. Your word has power by your spirit's working to transform hearts and lives, to give sight to blind eyes and to cause dead hearts to live. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would accomplish all of your good purposes this morning among us. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, well, Romans 8, as we have have said, is an absolutely glorious uh, chapter in Scripture. It's all about our absolute security in Christ. It, It begins with this statement of what God has done for us in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to show us the stark contrast between those who are, who are in Christ and those who are still among sinful, unbelieving mankind, that we are either dead or alive, that we either obey God and live for God or, or we obey sin, that either our mind is set on the flesh, we are consumed by it, pursuing only that, or our mind is set on the spirit. We are either self-centered or God-centered. We are either depraved and morally incompetent to obey God or to please God in any way, or we are redeemed and morally able to obey God and to please him. There is this radical difference that Paul has set up between these two categories of people that have absolutely no overlap. They are polar opposites of each other, and Paul is going to show us now in these verses what it is that makes this radical difference. And what Paul's going to show us is the thing that makes this radical difference in the life of a person is the Holy Spirit of God. Believers are in the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in them. As we look at this, this is a mystery we can't quite fathom. What it means for the infinite, almighty, third person of the triune Godhead to dwell in us and for us to be in him is certainly mysterious, but this is what makes all the difference, as Scripture reveals to us. Those who are not believers, those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, do not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. In fact, what Scripture has revealed to us is they're dead. They are dead in their sins. They are under the wrath of God. This saving faith, as we have seen then, 
leads a person out of that deadness and sin, out of that bondage to sin, that slavery to sin, and into a life of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We, we grow in faith and obedience. We grow in our desire to be pleasing to him. And so Paul's going to be highlighting that for us as we go in Romans 8. The verses we look at today showing even further this stark contrast that we begin to look at last week between those who are in the flesh, those who are in the spirit, and then the glorious reality of the spirit of God dwelling within his people. So look with me now at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So last week we looked at verses 5 through 8 showing this contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. And as we, we came to the end of that, those verses, verses 7 and 8, Paul makes four statements about the unbeliever. Four statements about, about really all of mankind prior to our conversion and what is still true of the unbeliever. He says the unbeliever is first hostile towards God. Secondly, that the unbeliever does not submit to the law of God. They will not do it. Third, that the unbeliever actually is morally incapable of submitting to the law of God. So it's not just that they willfully won't submit to the law of God. It's that they cannot do it. Finally, then, the unbeliever is totally incapable of pleasing God. The, the unbeliever, the one who is in the flesh, Paul has said, is dead in sin. That they're dominated by sin. They're enslaved by sin. They're controlled by their sin. And they are under the just wrath and condemnation of God because of it. But as we come into verse 9 now, Paul shifts. He's, he's given particular attention to the unbeliever. And now he says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. So Paul now turns his attention to the Christian, to the believer and he says to them, all these things we've just said about, about the unbeliever, about those who are in the flesh, none of those things are true of you, Christian. The, the, those things are not true of you. The, the, these things that are true of the unbeliever were once true of you, but they're not true about you anymore. God has changed that now. You were once dead in, in the sin. You were once hostile towards God. You were once totally consumed by the flesh, but now you are in the Spirit. Now you have been made alive by the Spirit. Now you have been even caused by that same Spirit to be a friend of God. You're no longer under the domination of sin and Satan. You have been set free. So Paul says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. As he turns to the Christian, we could interpret that word, and he's going to use it a couple times, that word if. We could re uh, interpret it as since. Paul talks about the unbeliever and their state of hostility towards God, their deadness in sin, and he turns to the Christian and goes, but since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone, uh, he says, uh, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, so, so there are two types of people in the world, and we talked about this last week. There's only two kinds in the whole world. You are either in the flesh or you are in the spirit. If you are an unbeliever, you are in the flesh. You do not have the spirit. If you're a believer, you're in the spirit. And, and Paul has presented these two categories to us as, as absolute categories. You're either all the way in the flesh and not at all in the spirit, or you're all the way in the spirit and not at all in the flesh. 
They're two distinct categories. They're, in fact, polar opposites from one another. There's no overlap. This is an all-or-nothing thing that Paul presents. So if you're a Christian, as Paul turns to the Christian, he wants to remind them that they are in the Spirit, and that has certain consequences in their life. If you're a Christian, what that means is God has sovereignly reached down and picked you up. He He has taken you out of your bondage to the flesh and to sin and to death. We talked in earlier chapters how Paul has presented this thing as sort of being cemented in Adam into sin, into hostility towards God. And what God has done for you, Christian, is to reach down, break you out of that, take you out of it, place you now not in sin anymore, but into his kingdom. You're now in Christ. You are now in the spirit. You are now once and for all made to live in him, living now and forever in the realm of the Spirit. But Paul says there's even more than that. Not, not only are we in the Spirit, he says the Spirit is in us. This is a, a two-way thing that's happening here. It's a picture of, of total salvation, total security. God has taken us out of the realm in which we once lived, and he has hidden us in Christ. He, he has placed us in his Spirit. This is the same thing Jesus promised to his disciples in the upper room the night, that, the night before he was to be crucified. He tells them this in John chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It says then in verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, you in me, and I in you. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What astounding statements these are. This is the, the almighty God that we're talking about. These statements that he would dwell within us. For the rest of our lives, Christian, we're never alone, Ever. That's scary on the one hand because we all have that part of us. Maybe it just takes place in between our ears. Maybe we've progressed in sanctification to the point that we don't give voice to the things we think about other people or the temptations that we battle with, but maybe you're like me and it doesn't always just stay between your ears. It's a scary thought to know I have no private thought, no private action, the almighty Thrice holy God is present. That'll motivate you towards righteousness. Oh, but what comfort, what comfort there is in this truth in a fallen world like ours. In a world where we have trouble. In a world where we have sorrows. In a world where we often feel isolated and alone and lonely. To know that the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within us empowering us, assuring us that we belong to God, that he holds us in his hand. We need this assurance from the Spirit in these days in which we live. But notice how Paul uses different descriptions for all of this that's happening. In verse 9, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In the second half of verse 9, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ. In verse 10, Christ is in you. In verses 9 and 11, the Spirit is in you. 
This is sort of similar to what I just read to you from John chapter 14, the way that Jesus speaks. He will send the Spirit who will dwell in you, and then Jesus says, I am in the Father, you are in me, and I in you. I and my Father will come and make our home with you. That Statements like this have led some uh, false teaching some heresies to, to be promoted. They'll look at, at statements like this, and the, the heresy is called modalism, or you often hear it called oneness in Pentecostal circles. Oneness Pentecostalism, if, you, if you've heard of that. If you've heard of T.D. Jakes, you're familiar with at least one person who teaches this. That, so what, what's being said here by Jesus and then by Paul is not that there is no difference between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It is certainly not teaching the heresy of modalism. It, it is simply powerfully illustrating for us the unity of the triune Godhead. Now, now there's something mysterious about this because the Lord Jesus Christ is embodied. We talked about this in the adult Sunday school this morning. Plug for the adult Sunday school. You should come. It's good. Uh, but we talked about this, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh in the incarnation and has remained embodied. And, and so the Lord Jesus Christ in a glorified body is seated, enthroned right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that is true. And it's also true that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christ is in us. There's some mystery here, but one of the things we see from this is this truth about who the Spirit is. The Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, infinite in glory, co-equal with the Father and the Son. They are totally united. They are totally united in purpose, totally united in divinity, totally united in majesty. And so the Holy Spirit dwells in us, works in us as an agent of the Father and the Son. Our, our salvation is a cooperative effort from, from every member of the Trinity. He, he causes us, the Spirit does, to be born again into the family of God. And this is true of all believers from the very moment of their conversion. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence within you. I don't think we think about this enough. I don't think we, we kind of get used to this. We've, many of us have grown up knowing this. And it doesn't astound us anymore to think about the ramifications of such a statement. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in me. Now, if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, here's what it means. You've not been converted. That's why Paul says this here in verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, there are numerous movements within Christian theology that place a very high emphasis on what they might call a second work of grace. Or they might call it on being filled with the Spirit or being baptized with the Spirit. Many of these groups think that you, don't re you haven't really received the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. That's the, the clear evidence that you have received the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem with that is the Bible never says anything like that. That's absolutely not what Paul is saying here. Paul is actually saying something quite the opposite. He says, everyone who belongs to God, that is, everyone whom he has saved, has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in them. They are in the Spirit. Every single Christian from the moment of their conversion 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The seal is a symbol of identity. It's a, it's a symbol of assurance. So, so for instance, anything that had the seal of the Roman government on it had the power of the Roman government standing behind it. If it has this seal on it, it'd be the same thing as, you know, a seal of approval from some organization. What that organization is saying is, we stand behind this. We, we, we promote this. We believe in this. We, we take ownership of, of this. What God has, Paul says, put his seal on you by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. And so there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within them as God's seal of ownership. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Contrary to much of the popular teaching, and all you have to do is turn on your television, and whoever that man is preaching or woman if it's a woman, they're for sure teaching this. But most of the men are. They're teaching this idea that you need a second work of grace. You've been saved. Yes, that's good. But you, need, you still haven't received the Holy Spirit. That is contrary to what Scripture is saying. It's contrary to what Paul's saying. We don't just receive part of the Holy Spirit at our conversion. God says, I'll give you a little more. But if you figure out the secret words, you'll really get something going. We don't need to add more of the Holy Spirit to us through a second work of grace. The fullness of the Spirit of God dwells within all believers. To be converted is to be baptized in the Spirit. What's the picture of baptism? It's total immersion. You go all the way under the water. You are totally surrounded by it. You are hidden in it. In fact, when you're all the way underwater, that pretty much defines everything about your existence at that moment, doesn't it? Because you can't stay there for that long. So you know you got to get up. That's, it, it consumes everything. That's the picture. That's our life in the Spirit now. We have been fully submerged, fully consumed. It's all-encompassing. It's entire life engulfing. It is completely transformational. Paul says in verse 10, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This... This statement, the body is dead because of sin. So far in Romans 8, Paul has been speaking about the flesh. The Greek word is sarks. That, that's, that, that, that statement of the flesh has not been, as we've seen, a reference to our physical bodies. We talked about this last week. The flesh is our lustful appetites, our sinful desires. It's our fallen, self-centered nature. Well, now Paul references the body. That's a different Greek word, soma. Now he's talking about our physical body. One of the ways we know that he's talking about our physical body is in verse 11 where he refers to it as our mortal body. So so what does he mean that our physical body is dead? Because we would have a hard time even reading these words if our physical body was physically dead, right? So what what does it mean that your physical body is dead? Well, it, it just simply means this. We as Christians have been redeemed, but our physical body has not been redeemed. We, we've been made alive spiritually, given eternal lives, but our physical bodies are still mortal. They wear out. They die. This is true of everyone, right? We're, we're, 
we're all, this sounds morbid, we're all dying a little bit more every day. We're all making our way towards that inevitable thing. It's true of Christians, it's true of unbelievers, it's true of everyone. Our physical bodies all have an expiration date because of sin, Paul says here. Chapter 6, verse 23 of Romans, Paul has told us, the wages of sin is what? Death. In James chapter 1, verse 15, he says that sin brings forth death. We, we saw in chapter 5 of Romans that sin entered the world through, through Adam, through Adam's sin, with the result that all men die. All men die. This is universally true, but what Paul says to the Christian now, so this is true for all of us, our physical bodies are dying. But then Paul, again, to the Christian says, that's not the end of the story. There's a major contrast here between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. He says, although the body is dead because of sin. Okay, that word although is a word of contrast. It's a word of tension. Here's the thing that's true. Our bodies are dead. We're all going to die. Although what? Although our bodies are mortal because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. That, that phrase, the spirit is life, it, it creates a bit of a translation issue. It, it's really two words, pneuma, zoe, spirit, life. And so some translations have a capital S, the one I'm reading for, the English Standard Version, capital S, the spirit, capital S, is life. Other translations, like the New American Standard, have a lowercase s, the spirit is alive. So the spirit is life or the spirit is alive. That's a translation decision. It could go either way, the way the Greek reads. It's just two words, spirit, life. So the translators are, are coming across that and saying, is Paul saying that the Holy Spirit is life or are they saying the redeemed person's spirit is alive and they have to make a decision about how they're going to translate it. Does that create a problem that there's a situation like that where it could be saying the Holy Spirit is life or the Spirit is alive in the redeemed person? The answer is no, because both statements are true. But both statements are absolutely true. In saving us, God caused our dead spirit to live. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 4, but God made us alive. So it is true that for the Christian, the Spirit is alive. Now, how did God do that? How is it that God made us alive? Well, we were made alive by His Holy Spirit. So it's also true that the Spirit is life. So both statements are absolutely true. Uh, either way, Paul's saying the same thing. What, what Paul's saying is this, we have been made alive, Christians, by the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in us. It's, it's the same statement Paul's making, whichever way we go with the translation. And then notice the last phrase here in verse 10. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. So, so we were dead. Our bodies die because of sin. But the Spirit gives us life because of righteousness. Now, what righteousness is that? That's important to know, right? If that's where life comes from, if we are dead in sin, our bodies are going to die, and Paul has already told us that the unbelieving world who is under sin is going to hell. We have death in this life and eternal death to come. And then Paul makes this statement that there's actually the possibility that death in this life is not, 
not the end, and we have eternal life. We should want to know how to get that. And he says it's because of righteousness. So what righteousness is it that gets that for us? Whose righteousness is it that gets that? Well, if we have been reading Romans up to this point, Paul has already told us we don't have any. We don't have any righteousness. So so we can gain this eternal life through righteousness, but we don't have any righteousness of our own. All we have is unrighteousness. All we have is rebellion. All we have is sin. It is Jesus Christ's righteousness. Jesus Christ is the one who accomplished and secured righteousness for us. It is his own perfect, eternal, infinite righteousness. And so here's what this means about the Holy Spirit's work here in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit does not work independent of the redemption that was purchased for us in Christ. The Holy Spirit applies to us what Christ has earned for us. This righteousness Paul speaks of is the very righteousness of God, revealed by faith, received by faith, and it is now ours through the work of the Holy Spirit who applies the perfect work of Christ to the believer. And again, this is the present reality for all believers, 100% of them. Even though our physical bodies are dying, we have been made spiritually alive, truly alive on the basis of the saving righteousness of God. This is our present reality. This is what's really true of us. It's more true of you, Christian, that you have been made eternally alive than it is that your body is getting older and fading away. That the most true thing about you, if you are in Christ, is you have been and are right now eternally alive. Isn't that good news? It's our present reality, but it has future eternal ramifications. Just, just as we saw last week, as Paul focused in on the, on the last two verses, verses 7 and 8, on the unbeliever, the unbeliever lives presently in death, their bodies are dying, with a final balloon payment to come, the second death, eternal death. Well, now too we see that the believer has been given life now with a greater realization of that life yet to come. It's ours now, but we're going to come into a greater realization of that. No more. You see, there's a day coming when we come into this where we won't wake up in the morning and have injured ourselves in our sleep. This is one of the most concerning things in my life as I get older, that I wake up and I'm like, I got hurt. I got hurt last night. I don't know how. It's because my body is fading away. So this eternal life is ours now, but there's a greater realization coming in. And this is where our greatest hope is found. Our greatest hope is found in this eternal future grace that is promised to us, that the grace of God, which is poured out on us, his mercies which are new every morning, there is a greater realization of that coming to us. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is where our hope is grounded. Our hope is grounded in the truth that although death is a present reality, death does not have victory over the Christian. We've been set free from sin and death through the life, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say in verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Sin has no power over the believer, and so death has no power over us either. That's why the Christian has great hope. That's why we don't grieve as those who have no hope when we grieve. It's because death is not the end. Death has no victory over the believer. We've been watching now, haven't we, over the last year and, and month or so, a world gripped in panic over death. How, how, maybe you've looked at things too, and you've said, how did we get to this point? How did we get to this place where people are responding in this way? Well, it's, it's simply this. For the unbeliever, there's nothing at all that's more terrifying than death. There's nothing more frightening than that. So we do everything we possibly can, including stop living, in order to avoid dying. But that's not the Christian, that's not where our hope is found, is to live in these mortal bodies forever and ever, as long as we possibly can, because that's all we get. No, our hope is found in the resurrection of the dead. Our hope is found in this promise right here, and it is not wishful thinking. This is a solid hope. We can trust this hope. This is a certain promise. If the Spirit dwells within you, He will give you resurrection life. Paul's going to say this in verse 23 later on in this chapter. We ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our spirit has already been redeemed, raised to life through, we call this regeneration, been made alive. And at the end of the age, there will be a redemption of our body. What an amazing statement this is. What amazing truths Paul is giving to us here. The same Holy Spirit, the infinite, glorious, holy, almighty, third person, of the triune Godhead, the same Spirit who raised the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave now dwells in you, causing you to live spiritually. And more than that, his ministry to you is not going to end when you die physically. His ministry is going to continue even after we have gone to be with the Lord. He will surely raise our body, transforming our mortal body into a resurrected, glorified body. This is a guarantee for every single one of God's people. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that if God's Spirit dwells in you, and if you are a believer, He does, if that's true of you, there is no doubt whatsoever that you will be raised with Christ as well. That the Spirit will raise you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption. So we saw Paul previously say from Ephesians that, that we are sealed by the Spirit, we belong to God. But now, now Paul in chapter 4, verse 30 of Ephesians says, what the Spirit has sealed us for, you were sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. Here's what this means. To be sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. It means this. If you are in Christ, you can count on it. You will be in him forever. Not because you deserve it. 
Not because you're particularly great. Not because somehow you earn it. It's because of the work of Christ alone applied to you by his Holy Spirit. In the verses ahead of us that we'll consider in, the, in next week, the Holy Spirit does all of this for us and then he, he, in his indwelling power, empowers us to live in victory over the flesh. Believers obey God as a result of saving faith in Christ, as a result of the Holy Spirit's indwelling power. So here's what this means, and I don't want to steal next week's thunder, but I just want to touch on it. It's important as we talk about the Spirit dwelling in us, that the Spirit has this effect on all people, all of his people in whom he indwells. Here's what it means. The one who calls himself a Christian but lives a life of willful disobedience to God, what do we call that person? We call them a liar. We call them a fraud. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in them. Now, now it's true that sin still dwells in us and we all sin, right? So I'm not saying that. I'm not saying the, per, the one who says they're a Christian and then sin. So I'm not giving you permission to go around to every other Christian because it's much easier for us, is it not, to identify other people's sin than our own if we could just be honest. Our self-perception is sort of like those fun house mirrors at the, at the fair, Sometimes I walk by those and I'm like, I am slender. I look really good. Uh, they don't always present a true picture of us. Uh, and our self-perception is like that. But boy, we can see it in other people. We can, we can see through all of that in them. So I'm not giving us permission to go around every time someone sins and, and have no grace whatsoever, and we're not interested in gently restoring them. We're interested in showing them how superior we are spiritually. No, that's not what I'm saying. Sin dwells in us. We all still sin, but the radical difference is the Holy Spirit now also dwells within us. He enables us to live lives of obedience. He, he, he causes us to hate our sin. He enables us to put death to our sin. The, the power of the Holy Spirit is far, far greater than the power of sin in the life of the believer. By the Spirit's power, we are not bound to sin. We, we are free. We can say no to sin. We can say yes to righteousness. And so it's the person who says, no, 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 I, there's no getting free. This is just who I am. You're going to have to accept it. These are the things I'm going to be doing, and God will forgive me, I'm sure. Those, that's the hypocrite. That's the one who, who, who we would say, that is not how Christians think. That is not how Christians talk. The Spirit of God did not lead you into that kind of thinking. What the Christian says is, I keep returning to this sin the way a dog returns to its vomit, and I hate it. I want to kill it. I want it gone. It's making me miserable. I want righteousness. Maybe the Christian even says, I don't hate this as much as I should. Lord, cause me to hate this. That's how Christians think. That's how Christians talk. This is the life of the Christian because the Holy Spirit actually empowers us to obedience. So yes, Christian, your life should look different than it did 10 years ago, even if you've been a Christian for 40 years. Because of the Spirit's sanctifying work in your life. If it does not, you ought to examine yourselves. Through the Spirit, God's people make war against sin and win. J.C. Ryle says this, a true Christian is known not only for his inner peace, but also for his inner warfare. 
This is the life of the Christian. Martin Luther said the whole of the Christian life is repentance. We are at war with sin, but we don't do this by trying harder. We don't do this by being a good person. Ultimately, you're going to fail apart from the Spirit. We cannot accomplish anything on our own. It's the the Spirit of God at work within us that accomplishes this. So we have no room for arrogance. We have no room for boasting. We have no room for looking down our nose at other people and saying, boy, you have not arrived like I've arrived. No, we grow in Christ the same way we came to Christ, by faith. We are justified by faith. We are being sanctified by faith. And so we are regenerated. We're made alive. We are placed in Christ. We are indwelled by the Spirit at the very moment of our conversion, and yet we await the fullness of this eternal life that we have been given. When the Spirit will raise our bodies, our battle with the flesh will finally be over. We will finally be fully free from sin and death. And Christian, this resurrection is guaranteed. Oh, that that would be the, the, the lenses we looked at our lives through. How much despair would we be saved? How much would we, the things that absolutely devastate us in this world and cause us to feel hopeless, if we were to look at them in light of these truths, how much would that change? John Piper says this, and we'll close with this. Even though redemption happens in stages, the stages will come. Your resurrection is as certain as Christ's resurrection because the spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in you. God did not create the body to throw it away. Christ did not purchase the body to throw it away. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And just as Jesus raised up the temple of his own body in three days, he will raise us up and live in us forever and ever. What glorious news this is. What glorious news. What a joy it is. Christian, what a joy it is to know that we are in Christ and he is in us. This is where our identity should be found. This is where our hope should be found. What's the most important thing about me? I am in Christ. That's where all of my hope is found. It's where my eternal and lasting joy is found. And if you are not in Christ, if his spirit does not dwell in you, then come to him. Come to Jesus. Put your trust in him. Submit your life to him. Receive him. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friend, if you are convicted this morning as you hear these words that you are not indwelled by the Spirit, that you are not in Christ, that's because the Spirit of God is calling you to come. That's the only way you would ever come to this conclusion. If you call on him, he'll save you. If you call on him, he will make you his own. Brothers and sisters, those of us for whom God has shown this immeasurable kindness of saving us, of regenerating us, giving to us the righteousness of Christ and sending his very spirit to dwell within us, let us live our lives in light of this reality. It is the most important, most true thing about us and let that color the way we see everything else. It, it is transformative to meditate on these truths. Amen? Let's stand up together.
Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, forgive us where we take that lightly, where we, where we get used to hearing these truths. They no longer astound us. We no longer meditate on them. We take them for granted. Lord, would you again captivate us with the glory of your salvation, the greatness of what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, cause us to be faithful. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would cause us to walk in increasing obedience, cause us to walk in increasing joy, cause us to walk in increasing life, that even as we walk through this world of darkness, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that the knowledge that you, are God, are with us, that your promises are true, Lord, would cause us to, Lord, even as we walk in the warfare of this world that you have called your church to, in this rebellious world, that we would do so with joy and with grace and humility. Lord, I pray that you would cause often our minds to come to these things, to meditate on these things, and it would, it would continue to transform us into the likeness of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace and your power to save. In Jesus' name, amen.